Section 23 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10. Results of the Breakup of the Frank Empire. Part 2. The undisguised rapacity and ambition, which were turning great church offices into private possessions, were acting equally in the political sphere. The dislocation of the empire extended much farther than merely to its divisions. The instability and changefulness of the times opened a wide field for the aims and efforts of private and local interests. What the king was doing for his kingdom, what the duke and the count were each doing for his duchy or county, separating it off according to his opportunity and for his own advantage, enlarging, overreaching, stealing at the expense of his neighbors, that the petty lord or the military retainer did according to his humble measure in his own neighborhood. There was a general loosening of the public bands which kept men together. There was a strengthening of the separate centers and local seats of authority and power. The pretensions, just or unjust, of the small were of course swept away by the superior claims of the great, when the great were strong enough to enforce them. But on a large scale and on a small one, the tendency at this time to divide and dissociate was greater than that to aggregation and union. The times were unhappy and evil. When no one could feel safe from war with his next neighbor, from opposite and irreconcilable claims on his allegiance, from the hopeless terrors of barbarian invasion, when religion seemed to have exhausted its power to restrain men from evil, and had degenerated in its highest places into the vilest profanation, when universal distrust reigned, and no man felt secure from his brother's dagger and his wife's poison. Yet though faint and weak, there were the gleams of a better hope. There had come in with Charles the Great the dim idea of the public interest, the claims of the race publica, the common weal as distinguished from the pleasure or the ambition of kings and great men. There had passed into the opinions and language of men, though it was over and over again rudely set aside, a notion of the duty of princes to consider the good of their subjects, and in their quarrels to remember the sufferings of the widows and orphans whom they made by their wars. The writers of Charles's own period, Einhardt, his friend, and Nithart, his grandson, who write like men accustomed to affairs, and who have not read for nothing their Roman models, are indeed more alive to these ideas than those who immediately follow them. But a step had been taken out of barbarism, and a beginning of better things made, when the idea of the public interest had been planted, at whatever disadvantage, and however feebly, in the growing society of Europe. With Charles the Great, the turn of things had distinctly come. Henceforth, though there was long to be, as much as ever, confusion, misrule, and wretchedness, and weary ages of crime and war, a progress is discernible, in some point or other, in each generation. There are steps backward, but the whole movement, though intermittent and slow, is forward. A footing for Christian civilization was made for good. It was Christian civilization which was to have Europe, French, Italian, German civilization, 
not the uncouth heathendom of the Slav tribes, Vens, Obotrites, and Czechs, not the desolating barbarism of the Magyars, not the unfruitful civilization of Cordova and Baghdad, the seats of the rival caliphates of the Mohammedan Empire. And the same disintegrating tendency which favored the growth of a multitude of petty local powers, rejoicing in their isolation and independence, had also a larger and more beneficial result. It created a swarm of little counts and lords, but it also helped a wholesome division between the naturally distinct portions of the Carolingian Empire. It made the great nations. On the breakup of the empire, its parts sought, each according to its natural or inherited affinities, to group themselves into larger or smaller aggregations, marked off from one another by history, traditions, interest, and language. To the west of the Rhine, we henceforth see the beginning and the growth of modern France. On the Rhine and to the east of it, the beginnings and growth of modern Germany. A memorable document, known as the Bilingual Oath of Strasbourg, 842, a year before the partition of Verdun, preserved to us in Nitart's contemporary history, is a measure of the degree in which, in point of language, the western and eastern portions of the Frank kingdom had gone asunder. When Louis the German and Charles the Bald exchanged solemn promises of mutual aid against their brother Lothar, these promises were confirmed by the oaths of their soldiers, and that each army might be witness of the transaction, these promises and oaths were pronounced in two languages, the languages of each host, German, Toidiska, Deutsch, and Roman, Romana, Romance, a language which has ceased to be Latin and stands in the relation of an elder sister to the modern languages of the West and South, Provençal, Italian, French, Spanish, which are known in opposition to the Teutonic languages by the common name of Romance languages. There are older fragments of German, but of the Romance class of languages, the Oath of Strasbourg is the earliest known example. It indicates that by this time, the middle of the ninth century, the land of the western Franks was preparing to become Latin France, and its people, not Franks, but French. The Latin element, always predominant in southern Aquitaine and the Roman province Provence, and along the valleys of the Saone and Rhone, rapidly recovered its ascendancy north of the Loire in Neustria, the land of the Seine, the Somme, the Oise, and the Marne. As soon as the strong constraint of the eastern Franks and their great king was removed, Gaul began steadily and surely to break away from the union with Germany, which Clovis had first forced upon it. It broke into separate and independent or almost independent portions, kingdoms, dukedoms, countships, all of them now deeply and irrevocably Latin. When the last of the great barbarian conquests the settlement of the northern sea rovers at Rouen, gave a new province to Gaul and introduced into it the new name of Normandy, the language which the newcomers at once adopted in exchange for their ancestral Scandinavian dialect was not the Teutonic one of the old Franks, 
but the romance tongue of Latinized Neustria. Then began the history of modern France, and the history of France was, for many centuries, the history of the aggregation and union of fragments, their attraction to a central nucleus, and the natural grouping round it of the nearer, the gradual annexation of the more distant. The new nation began with a new dynasty. The long and obstinate struggle between the expiring but gallant Carolingians, the descendants of Charles the Bald, and the Dukes of Paris, the sons of its deliverer, Count Odo, ended in the establishment of the new line, which was to hold the royalty of France for eight hundred years. But it was the new line which made France. In the assembly of the states at Saint-Lys in May 987, Hugh Capet, amid intrigues and treachery and premature and suspected deaths, became king. In May 1787, the first assembly of the notables bringing with it the doom of Hugh Capet's house met at Versailles. Between these two dates lies the history of the growth of the French nation, the development of French character, and the fusion into one realm of the French provinces. But the kingdom which Hugh Capet and his descendants created out of the ruins of the Carolingian Empire of the Franks, monopolizing the Teutonic name of France, while it drove out the Teutonic language before the Roman and fixed Latin ascendancy in Gaul, was far from being at once what it was to be. It was made up at first merely of the lands lying around its centre, Paris. Hugh was indeed crowned king of the Gauls, Britons, Danes, Aquitanians, Goths, Spaniards, Gascons. When his son Robert was made king with his father, he is described as reigning over the west from the Meuse to the ocean, and the style of king of the Franks was still maintained. But Brittany was unsubdued, Normandy at the very gates of Paris was but a nominal dependency in the hands of the strongest ruling family in Europe. Aquitaine was far off and held its own. The banks of Saône and Rhône, the slopes of the Jura, and the valleys of the southern Alps were occupied by the absolutely independent kingdoms of Burgundy and Arles. The kingdom of France was still to be made when Hugh Capet became king. It was then only taking its rise in small and insecure beginnings. The kingdom of the 10th century was to modern France what Wessex was to England before the days of Egbert. But while in the west of Europe Teutonic language and ascendancy had definitely failed to establish itself and was retreating before the reanimated Latin and Celtic influences, Germany, though the Latin name of Tacitus for the nation hardly appears yet in contemporary history, was in fact constituting and shaping itself in the center of Europe. It claimed both banks of the still Teutonic Rhine from source to mouth, though the West Bank, Teutonic as it continued to be in language and character, was long to remain a debatable land, fiercely contended for by the eastern and western divisions of the Franks, and itself often inclining to the West. Three great central kingdoms, Saxony in the north, Alemannia in the south up to the Alps of the St. Goddard and the Bernina Range, and between Saxony and Alemannia, the eastern France, the later Franconia, the land of the Main and Neckar, 
together with the Thuringian and Schwabian lands, formed the nucleus of the great country which was to fill so large a space in history. It was flanked westwards from the mouths of the Weser and the Scheldt to the sources of the Moselle on the western slopes of the Vosges, by the dukedoms of Friesland, of the Ripuarian Lotharingia between the Rhine and the Scheldt, and of Lotharingia proper on the Moselle, that middle portion of the old Frank kingdom, the future Netherlands and Lorraine, which, though Teutonic in language and race, was continually shifting its allegiance and changing its masters. To the south and southeast, Germany spread out into the almost royal dukedoms of Bavaria and Carinthia, and it was fringed eastward by a chain of borderlands, the Marks, or marches between the Germans and the Slavs, and between the Slavs, the Poles, and the Turkish race of the Magyars. On the north of this broad border, between the Elbe and the Oda, were the Nordmark and the Ostmark, and the marches of Merseburg and Meissen, the lands which were to become Brandenburg and Silesia. To the south, the Meerenmark, the Ostmark, and the Steyr mark the Moravian, Austrian, and Styria of later geography. Between these marchlands was the great kingdom, which was in due time to become the kingdom of Bohemia. These lands were the later acquisitions of Germany, the process by which the Latinized Franks of Neustria were transforming Danish Northmen into French Normans, was going on equally in the ninth and tenth century in these German marchlands. Out of the Germanized Slavs of the north and south, and the infiltration of German settlers in these outlying regions, were formed the races from which were to grow Prussia and Austria. The Germans, as we have seen, first had a separate king in the grandson of Charles the Great, Ludwig or Louis the German, the wise and just, 817 to 876, appointed in the early divisions of the empire king of the Bavarians, who with the partition of Verdun in 843 took all the lands and nations east of the Rhine. The kingdom of Germany was united for a moment with the western kingdom under his son, Charles the Fat, 884-887. But when the two portions finally broke asunder at his death, the Germans chose for their king another of the Carolingian line, Arnulf, who also received the imperial crown at Rome in 896. The direct line of Charles the Great in Germany ended in the grandson of Arnulf, Louis the Child, 911. Then, by election of chiefs and people, the people of the Franks and Saxons, the kingdom passed to popular and powerful dukes, first Conrad of Franconia, 911-918, then to his rival Henry of Saxony, 918-936 both of them connected by the female line with the Carolingians. Under them, in disaster, in success, in wars with the western kings and dukes for the borderlands on the Rhine, in fierce conflicts with Slav Obotrites and Vens on the eastern marchlands, in common resistance to the terrible Hungarian ravages, the Teutonic nations, distracted as they were with internal feuds, yet grew together and were from time to time united. But the greatness of the kings of the Germans, kings of the Franks they were still called, began with Henry's son and successor, Otto, 936. 
not unworthy to share the title of the great ruler in whose steps he trod, Otto the Great was the renewer of the empire of the West, the deliverer of Christendom from the barbarian scourge, the tamer of the tribes of the eastern border, the reformer, in some measure at least, of the monstrous abuses which had grown up under the ecclesiastical rule of the worst of the popes. Under Otto, king and emperor, Germany may be said to have taken definitely the place which it was to hold in modern Europe in the Middle and Later Ages. Otto, ambitious and imperious, yet noble-minded, generous, and a hater of wrong and disorder, became like Charles the type of a new kind of king in Europe. He was unsuccessful in his interference with the affairs of the Western Frank kingdom, happily unsuccessful, for his success would have hindered the natural course of growth in the Latinized population of Gaul. But he grappled strongly and successfully with internal disloyalty. He put down the mischievous restlessness of the Slavs of the eastern marches with a firm and stern hand, and sometimes with the pitiless rigor with which civilization meets the dangers of barbarian faithlessness. And he delivered Europe, from the misery and shame of the Magyar desolations by a great victory, which may rank with that of Isis at Chalon over Attila, and that of Charles Martel over the Arabs at Poitiers. In the tremendous battle of Lechfeld, August 10, 955, near Augsburg, the Magyars learned in a bloody overthrow the strength and determination of the Germans and their king. Otto was saluted on the field by his army as the father of his land and emperor. The victory which delivered Germany broke the Magyars of their habits of plundering and ravage and was the first step to make the Hungarian nation. Christian missionaries penetrated among them. King Geisa became their Ethelbert or Clovis. Fifty years later, they had an anointed Christian king, a saint, St. Stephen, and the sacred crown of St. Stephen, received from Pope Sylvester in the year 1000, became the emblem of one of the most famous of the kingdoms of Christendom. End of section 23